Well, brothers and sisters, I think it was a good idea for us to read that whole chapter uh, because today, um, instead of uh, doing what I normally do, and that is preach the word, I'm going to preach it, but I'm also going to do some teaching of the word. And what that means is we need to have uh, a bird's eye view of the contents that we're looking at. So as I make connections, you'll be able to make those connections in your mind if the text is not in front of you. So today we're going to be doing some teaching, and hopefully at the end of this message, I'll also give you a homework assignment to take home and to do as you read God's Word this week. So I think the best place to begin, obviously, is by zooming out, taking this uh, bird's eye view, as I said, of the entire chapter, Mark chapter 13. Uh, This section of the Gospel of Mark is what we call the Olivet Discourse. And why is that? It's because this is a discourse, a teaching that Jesus delivers to the disciples while he's sitting upon the Mount of Olives. So this is the Olivet Discourse. And really what's taking place in this discourse is that Jesus is telling the disciples about things that would happen in their future. Okay, so Jesus is prophesying future events. And the vast majority of what he mentions here in this chapter is about the judgment that came upon the temple and the judgment that came upon the city of Jerusalem in AD 70. So this is a prophecy of judgment that Jesus is giving. And so here, let me, let me give you this, this outline. I want to I break the whole chapter down into different stages of the fulfillment of this prophecy, right? So Jesus gives the prophecy but it will be fulfilled in several stages. And maybe one of the ways we can sort of visualize the development here is by comparing these things to the process of delivering a child. Okay, so for all you mothers here and and you fathers, you know exactly what that process is like. And, And just to say, if that seems like a strange analogy, I want you to know that I'm taking that imagery directly from what Jesus says in the text, and you can see it in verse 8. In verse 8, you'll notice that Jesus refers to the beginning of sorrows. That's actually the title of the message today. We won't get there, but but, uh, he mentions it. And you see that word for sorrow in the text. The same word is used in connection with uh, the pain that comes along with delivering a child. Okay, so uh, just as a a side note, the, the reason that's so fitting to compare uh, this judgment prophecy to the pain of delivering a child is that oftentimes the Bible describes the judgment of the wicked as something that is inescapable. Uh, This is pain that is absolutely inescapable and unavoidable. So here are the wicked, you know, they're living their lives, they're continuing without a care in the world. They're doing evil. And... uh, They go on like this, but eventually they come to the place that we can call the point of no return. The Lord is being patient. He's being patient and patient for many years, but finally they reach the point of no return. So judgment comes and the wicked cannot escape. And maybe here, let me just say that um, something we already know, Uh, giving birth is not a judgment. Giving birth to to a baby to a child is such a great blessing. Our children are a gift from the Lord. And yet at the same time, we have to remember that the curse that God originally gave to Adam and Eve when they transgressed his law, his word, 
and uh, in, in the fall of man did include an increase of the pain of giving birth. And so now, as glorious as it is to give birth to a newborn child, the pain itself is an inescapable reality. Okay, this is something that every woman who gives birth to a baby will feel to some degree. Now, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 3 says, For when they shall say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as travail upon a woman with child. And then Paul says, and they shall not escape. So then if we can utilize this imagery of a woman who's giving birth to a child, I think it'll help us to visualize the development of the fulfillment of the prophecy that Jesus is giving in our text. And so notice here that the prophecy is fulfilled, and I think three stages, okay, three stages. So the first stage is found in verses 5 through 13. The first stage is verses 5 through 13. And this is what we might call, just keeping with our imagery, the stage of Braxton Hicks, right? So uh, we all know that uh, at the very, very beginning of a woman's labor, her contractions are relatively mild. They're, they're, uh, they're spread apart. Uh, the process is just beginning, and her body is just beginning to be prepared uh, for labor. And again, it's in that section, Jesus says here at the end of verse 8, that this is the beginnings of sorrows, And in verse 7, he also tells us very clearly, the end is not yet. Okay? So this is the beginning, the stage 1, verses 5 through 13. The second stage is found in verses 14 through 23. 14 through 23. And this is where we see that things are getting closer to the end. Uh, Any woman who gets closer to the time of her delivery begins to experience um, contractions that are stronger They are more frequent, and so now she finds herself in the midst of real labor, in the midst of of pain, and she has to take decisive action, right? Call the midwife, or or maybe we could say, uh, get me to the hospital, you know. Well, in the same way here, Jesus says that at this stage, you know, the development of the prophecy, uh, the disciples also have to take decisive action. He says that when they see these things, right, and he starts to list them off, and he's really referring to the abomination of desolation. We're going to talk about that later. But he says when they see these things, they are to flee to the mountains, right? They have to take decisive action. And so here he indicates that the time is very near. The time is very near. Okay, so the third stage is found in verses 24 through 31, 24 through 31. And finally, that corresponds to the actual birth of the child. Now, you'll notice uh, that there's one more section here at the end of of the chapter, and that's found in verses 32 through 37. Here, I would say that this last section alone, out of everything that Jesus has said, this last section alone refers to the second coming of Christ. This refers to the end of history. So, As we put all this together and we look at the chapter as a whole, here's what we see. The things that Jesus mentions in verses 5 through 31 have absolutely nothing to do with the end of history. But instead, all of these things came to pass by the year 70 AD. Okay, now I know some of you are listening to that and you think that sounds way off. That sounds 
very strange. Uh, maybe, you're, maybe you're thinking, Pastor Liberati, are you really saying that when Jesus talks about wars and rumors of wars, earthquakes, famines, and troubles, that he's not talking about the end of the world? He's not talking about our future? I mean, are you really saying that false messiahs and Christians being persecuted and this thing called the Great Tribulation has nothing to do with the end of the world? You're probably thinking that. You're probably asking the question, what about the darkening of the sun, the moon not giving its light, the stars of heaven falling to the earth? Or what about the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven? Pastor Liberati, are you really saying that none of these things are referring to the time of the second coming of Christ? And the answer to all of those questions is yes. That's exactly what I'm saying. That's exactly what I'm saying. The only section where the second coming of Jesus Christ is mentioned in this chapter is in verses 32 through 37, that last little section at the very end of the chapter. Everything else has already been fulfilled. And so again, I know that might sound strange to many of you, but I would encourage you to hang in there, you know, stay with me. And uh, like a good Berean, you can search the scriptures daily to see if these things are so. And hopefully I'll be able to make my case and uh, you'll be persuaded um, as we study this chapter in the next few weeks. Okay, so now that we've seen the big picture, we've zoomed out, we saw the big picture, right? And you have the outline of the whole chapter, at least the way I'm going to preach this, uh, the way that I'm going to explain this. I want us to spend some time just looking at the opening verses of the chapter. I only want to focus on verses one through four because that's, that, that gives us the context that we need, okay? Uh, and and I'll, let me just emphasize that these verses are some of the most important verses in the entire chapter, verses one through four because they give us the context we need so we don't misinterpret this prophecy. And so it's critical that we understand exactly what's going on here. And I want to I want to help you with that. I want to give you two key words that you can write down, two key words. Uh, write them down and you can use these key words to sort of organize your thoughts. These are like buckets and you could dump a bunch of information in each one of these buckets, okay? The first word is departure. Departure Uh, And that's because in verse 1, Jesus departs from the temple. And we'll talk about the significance of that in a moment. Uh, The second word is destruction. And that's because when the disciples are admiring the beauty of the temple, the beauty of the buildings of the temple, Jesus said that the temple and Jerusalem would be destroyed. So there's departure and there's destruction. Uh, Both of those things are are mentioned in, in our text And these are the concepts that provide us with the context that we need going forward. So let's begin with the first one. And in verse 1, it says, Then as he went out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, see what manner of stones and what buildings are here. Now notice here that Mark is very, very clear that Jesus goes out of the temple. Uh, That's what I mean when I say Jesus departs from the temple. Okay, so that's your departure right there. But, but it's not just that. In order for you to see why this is so significant, you have to, again, zoom out. Like, you really just can't be in the weeds about this. You have, to, you have to hover over the text and over all of Scripture. You have to interpret Scripture by Scripture. You have to see parallels and reenactments and reoccurrences and patterns. You have to see these things, typology and fulfillment, okay? 
So we want to zoom out just a little bit, and we want to notice something that I, I want to call um, uh, the geographical sequence. Okay, so geography talks about place. What is the sequence of how Jesus is moving around? Okay, this is key. Uh, where did Jesus come from in the larger context? Where did he go when he got there? What did he do? And then, you know, where did he go from there again, right? So he's moving. He's, he's, he's doing all of these things. There's a geographical sequence to the context. And in, in this sequence, Jesus is giving all of us a picture that he wants us to see. Okay, so here's the sequence of his movements. Jesus comes into Jerusalem. He passes by the fig tree. He goes into the temple. And now he departs from the temple. But that's not all. That's just the beginning. Notice in verse three of our text, Mark chapter 13, verse three, Jesus goes from the temple specifically to the Mount of Olives. That is key. So Jesus is on his way out of the city, but before he leaves the city, he pauses. He stops on the Mount of Olives, which is where he gives this discourse before he departs from the city. So why is that sequence so significant? What what are we seeing here? Uh, Some of you who already are thinking about the Old Testament scriptures are already on to something. You're you're already saying, wait a second, there's a parallel in the Old Testament. I think I'm getting it. I don't remember where it's at, but there's something about the spirit of the Lord departing from the temple. The glory of the Lord departs from the temple. Could that be what Jesus is reenacting here? So that he's giving us a message in picture form. I would argue, yes, and it it doesn't take a a great scholar to conclude that. All you have to do is go to Ezekiel chapter 10 and Ezekiel chapter 11, and it lays it out. The sequence is that the Lord sees everything. He sees what's going on in Jerusalem. He sees what's going on in the temple. And there is where the Lord normally makes his abode. He dwells with his people between the cherubim. But at some point he decides, I'm done. He rises up from the cherubim. The cherubim turn into like this this chariot, this like warrior chariot, right? With these wheels. And the Lord rides the chariot out of the temple. He departs from the temple. But before he leaves the city, where does he go? He goes to the Mount of Olives where he pauses and looks back. And then he departs from Israel. Uh, Ezekiel 10, verse 18 We see the beginning of the departure of the Lord from the temple. It says, Then the glory of the Lord departed from the threshold of the temple and stood over the cherubim. So he got up now, okay, from the the mercy seat. And then Ezekiel 11.22 picks that up and says, So the cherubim lifted up their wings with wheels beside them, and the glory of, of the God of Israel was high above them, and the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city. So he's leaving the temple, he's going out of the city. And then it says, and he stood on the mountain, which is on the east side of the city. So there it is. He pauses on the Mount of Olives. Okay? So just in the geographical sequence of the Lord's movement, he's actually giving us a message we need to see. Just as the glory of the Lord departed from the temple in the days of Ezekiel, so now the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, who was in the temple, is departing from the temple. And here's why that's so significant. If you were to read Ezekiel 10 and Ezekiel 11, you'll see that the departure of the Lord from the temple leaves the temple 
and leaves the city vulnerable to the attacks of Israel's enemies. This is what God is saying. Uh, the sword is coming for you. I'm giving you over to invaders who are going to come. And this is the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, right? This has happened before. So that gives us a context of judgment. Very, very important. It would only be a matter of time before the enemies of the people of God would come and siege the city and siege the temple and destroy them both. So as you think about the concept of departure, uh, these are the things you have to see. Now, on the other side, the other key word is destruction. That's a lot easier to see because it's given to us not in picture form that we have to interpret uh, typologically and symbolically, but actually in plain words. So this is the commentary now on the actions that we just saw that will reinforce what I just told you. Because what I just told you, maybe you're thinking, ah, that's a little fancy. <laughs> that's a little fancy. But when you, when you put the words of the Lord Jesus Christ, the words of the text next to his actions, it all becomes very clear. Notice that when Jesus departs from the temple, the disciples say, teacher, see what manner of stones and buildings are here. And Jesus answers them very clearly. He says, do you see these great buildings? Not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. So here we can see that when you put the whole thing together, what we're not talking about, okay? This is important. What we're not talking about is the destruction of the world. We're not talking about the end of history. What we are talking about, contextually speaking, is the destruction of the temple and Jerusalem. And there's a little more context to this as well. So let's go back and retrace the steps of Jesus. Let's fill it in with the words that I mentioned. For example, when Jesus came into Jerusalem and he began to weep over the city, the question is, what did he actually say? What were the words that went with his tears, right? Why exactly was Jesus crying? Luke chapter 19, verses 41 through 44. And by the way, I'll be going back and forth. Why? Because Mark 13 has parallel passages in Matthew 24 and in Luke 21, actually. But it begins in 19, as you can see. So Luke 19, verses 41 through 44, it says, Now as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embarkment around you, surround you and close you in on every side and level you and your children within you to the ground. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. So Luke tells us that when Jesus was weeping over the city, it was because he knew that in a very short period of time, the city would be destroyed. And again, not one stone left upon another. And while Luke mentions the city, if you go over to Matthew, he actually mentions the temple. So Matthew 23, verse 37, Jesus says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. Okay, so there's, he's crying, he's looking at the city, but he's also looking at the temple. 
And he's saying, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, your house, that's the temple, is left unto you desolate. So there will be a departure and then there will be a destruction. Now, if you continue tracing the footsteps of Jesus, notice he goes by the fig tree. What did he actually say? We know what he did. He cursed the fig tree. The fig tree died. But what did he actually say? If the fig tree represents Israel, we want to know what the message is for Israel at that time. In Mark chapter 11, verse 14, Jesus said to the tree, let no one eat fruit from you ever again. Ever again. Let no one eat fruit from you ever again. I could develop that. We don't have time. Then when he told the parable of the vine dressers, what did he actually say to the rulers when he was in the temple? In Matthew 21, 43, he said to the rulers, therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to another nation producing the fruits of it. So then by the time we get to our text, we can see that the whole subject is about the judgment that was coming on apostate Israel for their unfaithfulness to God and for their rejection of Jesus Christ. They would take Jesus, we know this, it's coming in in the gospels. They're gonna take Jesus, arrest him and put him to death. But he's gonna rise from the dead. He's going to ascend into heaven. Uh, He's gonna sit down upon the throne of his father's kingdom, even the throne of the entire universe. Uh, There will be given to him a kingdom and dominion Um, from sea to sea, uh, to the ends of the earth. But the very first act of regal authority that Jesus uh, will execute will be to send the armies of Rome into Jerusalem to conquer and destroy the city, to destroy the temple, and with it, the entire old covenant system goes away. This is actual history, okay? Now, The system of the old covenant would never be reinstated. It will never be reinstated. Animal sacrifices are a thing of the past. The only sacrifice that can save us from our sins is the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. It is perfect. We cannot improve upon it. We're not going backwards. We have Christ. And in Christ, we have the forgiveness of our sins. We have our whole salvation, right? So this old covenant system will not be reinstated. The Levitical priesthood will never come back. This temple will never be rebuilt. And let me just say, not with the blessing of God. Not with the blessing of God. Remember, the kingdom was taken away from them and is given to a nation that will produce the fruits of it. And the fig tree that represents Israel, Jesus said, no one will ever eat from that tree again. It's here that we can begin to see the significance of the disciples' reaction to Jesus. The disciples their minds are blown. Like, they're not expecting this. They're expecting for Jesus to come and say, I'm the king, I'm here, where's my throne? I'll reign from Jerusalem. They have no idea of all the things that Jesus is actually accomplishing on a universal scale, okay? He's, he's, he's the king of the Jews. No, he's the king of the universe, right? Redemption is cosmic, okay? He has dominion over the whole earth, okay? So they, they, they don't see it, and you can, you can see how their reaction to Jesus is, it's, it's understandable. So when he says that no stone would be left upon another, but that all would be cast down, they immediately began to ask him questions. You'll notice here that there's two questions in our text. So far, we've only looked at verses one and two. Now we're gonna look at verses three and four very, very briefly for the sake of time. It says, now as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, and John, and Andrew, interestingly, 
asked him privately, tell us when these things will be and what will be the sign when all these things will be fulfilled. That, there's more context that's now setting the parameters of the discourse that's about to come. The disciples are asking two things in verses three and four, two things. And if you understand the question, then you'll be able to understand the answer, okay? <laughs> uh, one of the questions has to do with timing. The other has to do with the signs or the indicators that these things are, are happening. Uh, so they wanna know when these things would happen and what signs they could be looking for to know that it was almost here, right? That's what they want. But notice very carefully, notice the repetition in their questions. They repeat themselves in a very important way that's helpful for us to see. In verse three, they say, when will these things be? What things? These things. And then in verse four, they say, what will be the sign when all these things will be fulfilled? Okay, so they wanna know the timing of it. They wanna know the signs that will accompany it but they're talking about these things. This language is very important because it keeps the rest of the discourse in context. The disciples, just to reiterate this and emphasize the point, the disciples are not asking about the end of the world. They're not asking about the end of human history, okay? They're not thinking about that. They're asking about the things that Jesus just said were going to take place. Okay, these things. All right, now that's not to stop Jesus at the end of the chapter from adding to his prophecy. Of course, he does mention the second coming, but the bulk of the discourse is dedicated to answering these two questions. So when you understand that these are the questions that are being put forth to our Lord, then we know that when he begins to answer, uh, he knows how to answer questions, right? He doesn't just start talking about something completely different. no. We have to see that. Now, next week, we're going to pick up right there. Because if I were to go into the next verses, it, it's going to just scratch the surface. It's a big section that's coming up. We're going to look at several of the signs that Jesus is giving. I'm going to unpack those. I'm going to show you that those are first century fulfillments. So there's going to be a lot of history, a lot of names and dates and places. But opening of the New Testament, you can see most of these things taking place in the book of Acts. So we're going to go through all of that. We're going to get into great detail. We're going to go piece by piece through this prophecy. But for right now, I would just encourage you to focus on the things we covered. Look at the context of this prophecy. Discipline yourself to read the scripture as the scripture is designed to be read. So let me encourage you this week to take some time and study this chapter for yourself. Okay, this is your homework assignment, okay? Now, study, study Mark 13, but also look at Luke chapter 21 and Matthew 24. Just look at them, read them very carefully. But finally, as you do that, I want you to give special attention to one detail as you go through, okay? This is a detail that's going to help you and reinforce everything I'm saying. Give special attention to the time indicators that are sprinkled throughout these chapters, the time indicators, Okay. Uh, Jesus uses several time indicators. We already saw one, the beginnings of sorrows. And he says, don't worry, the end is not yet. Uh, the end of Jerusalem, obviously. Um, but especially, I'm just gonna give this to you as we go. Especially that little statement that Jesus makes in verse 30. Because there Jesus really restricts the time in which his prophecy can be fulfilled. 
In verse 30, he says, Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away until all these things take place or are fulfilled. Okay? So there's just a generation that's going to pass between when Jesus utters the prophecy and when the prophecy is fulfilled. It will unfold in the several stages that we're going to see throughout the chapter. But a generation is only about 40 years. And I will tell you that the Lord Jesus Christ's ministry was roughly around 30 AD. If you were to add 40 years, a generation to this prophecy, which he uttered at that time, what year do we end up on? 70 AD. Okay, so, so, so pay very careful attention to the time indicators, and I promise you the text will become easier to understand. Let's close there. I know I did some teaching. I, I didn't do a whole lot of preaching, but um, may the Lord bless you with, with the material that we covered today, and may he uh, inspire you to go home and search the scriptures carefully. Amen.